Welcome to episode 22 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my enthusiastic co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, how are you doing? Doing pretty good for a Monday, Winston. At least it's over. Yeah, yeah. We're recording a day late. Yep, that's my fault. I uh, had a pretty full day yesterday and uh, had some company over, so I uh, had to push the podcast out one day. Were you guys watching uh, Game of Thrones? So my sister-in-law, who was actually here this weekend for her birthday, she's, she just lives up the street from us. But um, yeah, she's a big Game of Thrones watcher. My, my wife doesn't watch it. I, I hardly watch any TV. Why am I not surprised? I'm more of like podcasts and uh, machining videos on YouTube kind of thing. But um, anyway, uh, so how has your how's your week been so far? It's it's been not bad. It's I uh, took the last couple of days off from the shop. I had a friend uh, come in from the East Coast, old buddy of mine for known him for like the past twenty years, twenty five. Like I've known him for a while. Like as long as I have my younger brother. So we go pretty far back and he hasn't been to LA before. So I took him around, did all the, the touristy things, went to the beaches and whatnot. So it was, it was good to actually get out of the shop because since moving here, I've never had a good opportunity to go explore. So it was also sort of enlightening for me to be able to go check out what's around here um, and actually explore my own home. Um, so that was, it was good, but I'm slowly starting to get back into the the swing of things. Uh, I, after finishing the last big project, which I can now talk about, the longboard, um, I'm starting to try and cycle in some some new lighter projects, maybe out of wood or MDF that aren't so taxing. Um, and I think it'll be sort of a nice uh, palate cleanser before whatever my next big project is. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, that was a huge project, and. Um... I'm I'm almost over my disappointment that it really wasn't a serving tray. But <laughs> <laughs> well, once once it comes back from anodizing, maybe I'll I'll line up some cuts of meat and maybe some some cheese blocks on it and uh, bring it out for uh, its debut as an actual serving tray. Yeah, that was actually that was a really nice piece of uh, CNC work on uh, on the Shapeoko. So congrats on getting those done. I think you did, and then you did it two more times, right? You've got three of those completed. I did, and none of them are perfect, which really bugs me. In in one way or another, each of them has a cosmetic defect. Um, the first one, there was a, a runout issue where the collet wouldn't seat properly, so um, on the walls with with the extra runout, the end mill was leaving lines as I was stepping down and finishing. The second one, I had a bad tool path, and I I crashed um, on the inside of the carbide 3D logo, so I had to just carve out the C. And then the last one, um, what happened there? Oh, um, one of my toolpaths was also bad. Um, I was supposed to finish off the top surface of the ribs on the bottom, um, but my containment boundary was a little wide, um, and so the toolpath sort of uh, draped over the edge of the rib and hit the bottom of the floor. And so there's a little mark there um, in the little little corner of that V. So from the top side, it looks fine. From the side, it looks fine. But from the bottom, there are just these small little um, uh, indents 
where my toolpath for finishing wasn't quite perfect. And so, I don't know, it's it's a little frustrating because I thought by the third one I would have perfected the process and um, been able to just sort of hit run and come back 10 hours later and have a perfect board. But each one I was, I was learning lessons, um, usually just about uh, just my diligence in how I set up my toolpaths. Um, and I guess that that's kind of a good thing in a way, that the Shapeoko wasn't the limiting factor. It was usually uh, like I overlooked something. Um, and on a project this big, that's I guess that's pretty common. And with like a production part on a big VMC, you would be able to iterate on this many, many more times and get that toolpath just right. But here, because the each board takes so long, um, that learning cycle is spread out really far. And I was making a lot of changes to my uh, program between each long board. And so every single time I was learning something, um, but I wouldn't, uh, like, I, I couldn't fail fast and iterate and dial in that toolpath exactly how it should be. Um, so while it was uh, really enlightening to go through that process, it's also a little frustrating to have to, um, like, invest so much time into something only to have it fail, like, in the last five minutes or something. Quantity three on something that big, you're still, you're basically still at prototype stage. Um, so, I would, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't feel too bad about that. And I think, uh, I mean, all three of them are functional, right? They are, they are. And from more than three feet away, if you didn't tell anyone what they should be looking for, they'd probably think it looks just fine. Um, but as the creator, when I know exactly where the flaws are, like I, I cannot rest easy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm. I know. Uh, have you sent them off for anodizing yet, or is that? Uh, yeah, we did. They should be coming back this week. Um, two of them in clear, and one of them uh, shop's choice. So uh, we'll see what that turns out to cool. be. Yeah, I can't wait to see the them after they're anodized. Are they? Uh, are they doing any kind of? prep like uh, tumbling or anything before they anodize or you going right over the shiny rob suggested um either scotch brighting them or bead blasting them and i thought about it and i was like these these three are supposed to show off not just the uh the machining aspect of it but also like my learning process through it and continuous improvements so I didn't want to hide any of the machining marks. Um, now, there is a fourth piece of stock, which I I keep thinking, maybe I'll make a fourth longboard, but it's going to take a while for my emotional scars <laughs> to heal before I take that on. But that one, um, I might take some... If I make a fourth longboard... That one might be the one uh, that I finish up either bead blast or or um, polish up the the top deck um, and just apply some of those uh, superficial finishes to, um, because at that point you're not showcasing the the act of machining. Um, at that point, I kind of feel like I want to showcase the longboard as a product, and so that's sort of the 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 philosophical transition between the prototypes and then once i think i have a mature process um like the like this is the end-all be-all carbide cruiser longboard and i'm never going to revisit this project again 
Well, you should. We should plan it so that you work. You build your fourth one the same time I build my probably last spinner ever, which is going to be for Carbide 3D to go in their display case, and they can both go in the in the, the display case there at work. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, the the longboard would probably be a wall hanging because I don't think our display case is big enough. In fact, I don't know if we have a display case anymore. We used to have one in the old office, but. I haven't seen one in the new place yet. Ah, well, we'll be the first two artifacts. <laughs> yeah. So you, um, did you stick with the carbide tools, the new ones, uh, for the most part for that project or did you? I, I did. Um, it, it was a pretty good stress test for them because, um, each board has about, I want to say 12 to 13 hours worth of just adaptive roughing. And um, I did all of my roughing for all three boards with a single uh, single flute tool. And that's going to be the 278 cutter when it comes out, hopefully like in the next week or two. Uh, we're just waiting on them to arrive from our vendor. Is that the uh, quarter inch? Yeah, uh, quarter inch single flute, ZRN coated. Uh, does three quarter inch depth of cut. Um but really, if you're machining more than like half an inch of aluminum, you're a nutcase. Yeah, we'll, we'll revisit that shortly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I was kind of curious how they how they held up on that project, and uh, especially especially if you did you know having done three boards and uh, guy, you must have removed a, a good ton of aluminum there. Each board went from about uh, fifteen pounds to six pounds. Um. Although a couple of those pounds is just me contouring off the corners of the stock. So it's like I didn't actually go through that material, um, but I had to separate it from the board in some way. And that was actually potentially more stressful than actually adaptive roughing because I was doing just a straight contour. Um, for a board that big, if you want to use like the adaptive slotting all around it, the calculation time is horrendous. Um, like it's bad enough for like something on the Nomad, but when you're only doing like maybe a, a 25 thou optimal load, each of those arcs only nibbles away at a really small amount of material. And the calculation time is like 15, 20 minutes to get around the entire board. And what was your uh, stock, stock thickness for the board? Your starting thickness? It was half an inch. Yeah, okay. And the board's nominal thickness is about 0.45 inches. So I assumed about 50,000 of it would be lost to like uh, any bow or warping in the material. And the, the stock we got wasn't too bad. I think I would estimate um, maybe only about 15 to 20,000 of it was really uh, not flat. So I could have made the board a tiny, tiny bit thicker, maybe like a 32nd of an inch. Um, but just to ensure that, um, after I faced it, I would have enough material. I targeted, uh, 0.45 inches. It was a two piece construction, right? The main board and then the kicktail, which I, I think the main board, everything on that was done on shape. Oko. The first kicktail was also entirely done on the shape. Oko. The last three, um, I roughed out on the shape. Oko did half the finishing there. Um, and that was on a Sunday night, and I really wanted to get these out to anodizing um, at 
close a business Monday. So I brought them into work and finished up the uh, just the top surface of the kicktail at uh, Carbide 3D HQ. I mean, it's entirely machined on Carbide 3D machines. Ideally, it'd be completely on the shape Oko, but the last few operations are like purely cosmetic. We're talking like uh, a 20 thou depth of cut at most. So the shape Oko could have easily done it. It's just I didn't have time to do it. And what was the starting stock thickness for the kicktail? It was more than half an inch. It was a f- it was a full inch. Yeah. yeah. Um, I could have gotten away with uh, about three quarters if I'd machined the kicktail not with one face flat um, on the wasteboard, but instead like sort of um, had it in a, a very shallow V shape where the uh, sort of that little pivot point is at the bottom, um, because that's how you get the sort of the minimum thickness if you were to like package it up in a box but then none of my faces would be parallel to the xy axis so i wouldn't i'd be hard pressed to get any flat reference surface i'd have to do a lot of uh, 3d finishing and that's just not as efficient so i decided that one of those faces has to start um in the uh, xy plane you did a finite element or stress analysis, right? Static analysis on the on the model. Yeah, and it's it's not something I'm super proud of because I, I cut a, a couple corners. So ideally, you would start with the whole skateboard model. You would um, pin one of the uh, axles on the trucks, and the other one you use like a, a frictionless um, constraint so that it could slide back and forth as the board bows and deflects and pulls the nose or the tail closer. Um, but I only had the deck in my uh, simulation, so I couldn't really use a pin constraint because I didn't have any uh, cylindrical bore or cylindrical surface that was in the y-axis of the board. Um, so I had to sort of use a symmetry constraint and assume that the middle would stay static. So I, I picked like the logo area, which was the, uh, the thickest part of the board, um, constrained that, and then applied force at the nose and the tail. Um, So that pretty much just simulates the reaction force of the trucks through the board, uh, as opposed to like fixing the wheels and then applying either a point load or a distributed load across the top of the deck. And it worked out not too bad. I mean, you can see the stresses going through the ribs in the outer loop, uh, the structural loop, like as it should. Um, And it's more just like a, a... to show the principle that most of the forces are taking the load paths expected, but it's not exactly uh, academically rigorous. Yeah, I mean, you have no intention of turning this into a commercial product, and probably no one will write it but you, I would think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm bringing it to Maker Fair, so anything could happen, but because of the way each of the, the boards was machined, none of them uh, sort of hit the 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 safety factor that I wanted. The first board is is fine for somewhat of my weight. Um, it, it bows about a centimeter when I step on it. Um, and so based on that, I was like, all right, let me increase the thickness of the ribs just a tiny bit. Um, the the top deck, that skin, I could maybe thin that out a little bit because it doesn't really matter that much. Um, but when I machined the second one, uh, there was some cosmetic defects. I had to machine that 
bottom face just a little thinner. Uh, so each of those boards, um, because I goofed in one way or another, I had to remove extra material. So it never... All of the boards are undersized from the nominal model in some way. So they're they're not as strong as I had hoped or designed them to be. So maybe, again, that fourth board, I'll get it perfect. I'll feel okay letting a 250-pound person ride it. Um, but yeah, th these boards are... I'm going to be discerning about who I allow to ride these. Yeah, I mean, in the end, they're more static display kind of a... They are, but I intend for at least one of them to be used. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna try and keep one of them in my garage so I can hold on to it. And uh, I, I added an extra feature on the bottom of the kicktail at the very end, which is a, a little pocket that I'm going to drop in a little Delrin puck into. So that if you do step on the kicktail, the aluminum won't scrape against the asphalt. Um, that wear pad will be the first thing that makes contact. So, I mean, there are some design features intended to allow this to be ridden without damaging it too much. But if you run this thing into the curb, you're probably going to dent the outer profile in some way. And uh, that's going to break my heart. Do you have a future electrification plans for any of them? Someone brought that up um, on my Instagram, and I I asked them if they had done an electrif electrification before and if they knew of a good drop-in kit, and they did not. Um, but if someone out there knows of just, like, if I can buy a pre-assembled, like, battery pack where I, all I need to do is, like, plug in, like, a 12 or 18-volt charger and the battery and the motor controllers are integrated and all I have to do is like maybe buy a motor and one of those uh, driven axles, I'd be more than happy to make an electrified longboard. Um, I just, for for everything I have on my plate, um, I can't sort of homebrew that solution. I don't have time to um, develop that from scratch. So it kind of has to be like an off-the-shelf kit. And there are some out there, uh, but they start at almost the price of a used boosted board. So, like, I don't know if I want to just buy an old V1 boosted board and, and pull the guts off that, or... I don't know. The, there's not, like, a, a cheap, like, I can't go to SparkFun and buy a electrified skateboard kit. They're all, like, hundreds of dollars, and that's a little above my impulse purchase range. You're not really a skateboarder anyway. <laughs> Probably like me. No. <laughs> um, but, I mean... If you could have a motor propel you instead of having to push off, that would make my life a whole lot easier in terms of riding this. This longboard deck isn't super friendly for beginners um, because it's like the trucks are mounted underneath. Uh, if you do like a drop through or a lower deck, what that does is it puts your feet closer to ground level so that when you're pushing off, you don't need to step down nearly as far. And for me, I was like... Um, between having to like sort of uh, bend my front leg just a little so I could push off or accidentally kicking the back wheels because the trucks are a little wide. Um, it, it took me a lot of getting used to this board before I could even uh, just go down the street without tripping over the wheels. Yeah. So um, back to the machining on it. Did you, did you have to, let's see, I remember you created um I think your main picture was uh, 
MDF, right? With pockets machined into it? Was that kind of the main strategy? Um, for with indexing pins, at least for the, the main deck. For the uh, kicktail, because I had to um, hold, uh, hold the kicktail against first the tab that uh, was the interface to the board, and also the angled tail. Uh, I had to. I initially created a pocket that was the shape of that back profile of the tail, so I could just locate that feature and then rest the back, the angled part of the kicktail flat on my CNC while I faced that and machined a pocket for grip tape. Um, but eventually, when I brought that kicktail into work, I was like, I don't want to machine like several cubic inches of MDF just to create a pocket that I can lay the kicktail in. So what I instead did was I drilled in, I machined some pinholes uh, that were tangential to the outer profile of the kicktail. So I could just slide the kicktail against these pins and that would locate it. And that took like two minutes to machine as opposed to like 30. So that I, I really like that solution for um, just locating, uh, I don't know, just anything. I'm probably going to use that in the future. So did you, I'm trying to think, you mostly use quarter-inch tooling. Yeah, there were some some of the smaller features, like the holes for the trucks needed to be about 3 sixteenths of an inch. And since I really can't put a drill bit in my CNC, I had to interpolate those. So that was with eighth-inch tooling. Uh, but every other tool was quarter-inch, which is, which is kind of nice because I don't need to worry about the rigidity of that, just the rigidity of the machine. Yeah, so I, I, I'm asking because I'm... Uh... Like I'm working on a commercial part that's kind of brought me back to a problem I've really never uh, solved to my satisfaction with um, this. I mostly run into this run into this on the pocket NC because that's where I use these uh, long reach stub tooling. Um, if I have to machine, I think like the longest tool I have is uh, well, I do have a one inch, a one point one two five inch uh, quarter inch Destiny Viper, which is all flute like that full length. I uh, r- rarely run that. It doesn't really run well in any of my machines. It's too big and it, it chatters. But um, I've had some luck with the Harvey long reach stubs. But once I get to like a reach of about 1.1 inch or 1.25, basically anything longer than 0.75 inches in aluminum, I, I have yet to be able to get one of those to run chatter free. Um, this is on the V210 and the V250. I just. Uh, I don't know if you've run those tools much. It's just they're, I think they're just very narrow band where they run correctly. Yeah, yeah that's only really on the, uh, that nerf cage that I made where I had to go through that, that center bore. Um, but I was, I had to back off by like 25% because they, it developed a really shrill vibration. And at that point, it's, you're down to tool deflection. You, you can't fight like the physics of a long, narrow, piece of carbide gave up on using them for roughing and was just using them for finishing and i can get a little little bit further with it you know with the really light finishing cut but even uh, i was working on a basically a cylindrical part in six in 6061 it was about mm, probably two inches in diameter and i need to machine down like 1.5 inches uh on the od just to kind of you know get the mill finish off so i basically was already looking at having to flip the part because i have uh I think my, I have a, my longest long reach shove is 1.25 inch reach. So, uh, but I could not get like a decent cut with that or a decent surface finish with that, even with like really, really light cuts. I was trying to go, 
you know, sometimes the right answers like actually get more aggressive in the cut to dial out some of the chatter. So I was trying that too. And, um, really just kind of got worse <laughs> either way. Right. If I go too light, it really chatters bad. And if I go too heavy, it chatters bad. And then like, what would be the recommended feed and speed is kind of, doesn't give me the surface finish I want. I just can't dial it out. So anyway, I'm going to keep working on that. I just haven't used them yeah. enough to what's, what's the geometry on that part? Uh, it's just a, cyl- a cylindrical two inch cylinder. Well, actually not quite two inches. It's, um, like 45 millimeter diameter round bar. Is there, is there no way you could use a larger tooling on that? No, no. Well, I'm doing this on the, on the V250, which I'm limited to, uh, one eighth, one eighth inch. Well, I can go four millimeter, but I don't have any four millimeter tooling, but, um, really on the NSK spindle, you shouldn't be running anything bigger than about three millimeter cutting diameter on that. So I was running a one eighth inch. Um, I'm actually going to a smaller tool cause I'm not sure, you know, the other strategy I can try is just reducing tool pressure and see if that helps. I'm really most interested in finishing right now, getting a good finishing cause I can, uh, I can rough it a different way, right? I don't necessarily need to use a long reach step. Uh, but yeah, I was going to say, you could probably throw it on the, the V210 maybe. Yeah, except this is a V250 evaluation for the customer. Yeah, they don't care about how the V210 works. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm going to keep working on it. I think I can get it. Uh, I've got some different tools coming in uh, from Harvey that might work a little better. Uh, it might also be flute count, so I don't know. Um, I think I've been running... I have to go back and look. I think it was a probably a four. two flute. I think yeah. I think I was running a four. I was going to try a three. I don't know if they have a two in long reach stuff, but the three might run a little better. Um, yeah. So anyway, I just kind of I didn't know if you'd had any experience. I think another option is you know Daytron has. Um, I don't have any on on hand here in the small diameters, but they have single flute reduced neck diameter tools. Yeah, but I think they don't go much beyond like 13 millimeters in reach, maybe 17. I, I got to check the catalog again, but an inch and a quarter, inch and a half is pushing it. Yeah, I think those are on their larger diameter tools too. Because, I mean, if anything, single flute in that use case is probably, I'm looking at even less core rigid, rigidity, right? So, yeah, I'll keep working on it. But uh, this is, I'm kind of glad that I've, have this part now because it's kind of forcing me to you know i basically just avoided or looked for different strategies when i had to when the long reach tool would have really been the the right tool um just because i have problems running it. i think I just, i'm going to spend the time and and uh you know at least find out the how how well it can run on these machines i'm pretty sure i'm not at the limit yet it's just you know something wrong in my recipe this is probably a crazy idea but what about um using an angled cutter, like a chamfer cutter and coming at it, um, from like 45 degrees. I could try that. I don't know what that, what kind of finish that's going to leave. Cause that tool's not really. Your, your SFM is going to be inconsistent because you're still turning a tapered tool, but you can, you'd have a lot more rigidity. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, I can also, there might be some four millimeter tools out there. At least, you know, I get a little bit of extra meat on. Um, that's really the only other optimization I can make and still stay with that family of tools. But anyway, I just, I ran into that problem last week and I kind of set it aside because I had some other parts for that same customer to make that were different geometry, didn't run into that problem. So, you know, I'm almost done with those and I'll be back on the, the challenging part pretty soon. 
Um, it's actually supposed to be the easy part <laughs> from the client's perspective. Like the, the one they told me was the hard has actually worked out pretty well. Uh, you know, the one that, that they didn't think would be doable on the V250 actually came out pretty good. And then uh, the one they thought would be a piece of cake because it's actually super simple geometry, but it's that length that's getting me into trouble on it. Could you, I don't know how this would work out, but could you also just try a wrapped like uh, contour pocket around the part just to see how that works out? Yeah, I was actually thinking of like coming at it from, you know, rotating on the on the B axis and coming at it from the side. Um, I, I haven't tried that yet and I don't know just how round that's going to come out. But, uh, or, or make like long vertical passes, right? I mean, it, it would almost, it should be as round as a lathe could turn it. Well, you're talking about coming at it, like coming perpendicular to the long axis. Yeah, so part upright and the ax, the, the spindle coming in from the side. Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually uh, almost my last option, right? Um, if I can't get the long reach stub to work, I'll try that. Is that it's weird, I don't really have that much material to remove because the, I think I'm going from, I can't remember if it's 46 or 48 millimeter stock down to 40 five final diameter, you know, with a good surface finish, right? That's mainly to, what I'm trying to show on that part is the surface finish, uh, even for longer parts. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that works. Yeah, so you were machining some copper on the Nomad, right? This week or today, I think. I was. Um, it's sort of a, I, I figured I did copper sheeting um, for last week's Material Monday. So I might as well try just a slab of some thicker copper and, uh, try some of our, our more conventional tooling in it. And the uh, it's um, tellurium. I think that's the element it's alloyed with. Um, 145 grade uh, copper in HO4 hardness, full hard. It actually machines shockingly well. Like the surface finishes I was getting were actually like really, really shiny. And I was kind of impressed yeah i was i was expecting that to come out pretty good for you um i don't know if you ever saw i i, I had uh, some bad experience with copper on the nomad but i was using basically pure copper and it was in uh it was not in, it was like half hard i think uh which really i didn't know at the time but that's that was probably not the ideal copper grade to be slapping in a cnc milling machine no <laughs> yeah. definitely not yeah it gave me a lot of trouble um and it was soft, right? It, that was, it wasn't that it was hard. It was just gummy and very difficult to to clear chips on. So, yeah, I'm going to go back and try uh, the 145 grade. I think that's... That's uh, on McMaster. Like they say, that is like in the, the checkbox of is it machinable? Like this one is the best. Yeah, easily machinable. And, uh, right? It seems to be. Yeah. 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 And I saw the results. I mean, on your... You posted them on, on Instagram today. That was exactly the kind of finish I was trying to get and it didn't come close. So, um, yeah, I'll probably order some of that. And I, I have a little bit of the other copper left. I'll just save that for uh, other experiments that <laughs> don't involve machining. Yeah, like I, I don't know what you can do to make that usable. <laughs> uh, bus bar. Um, because most of that stuff, uh, you, it only work hardens, I think. Um, so I don't know how you can uh, make that usable on a CNC. Right. And actually, I, it was hardening, work hardening as I was machining it, which is also part of the problem. Yeah, I would actually go back and, you know, I'd pocket it out and then go back and do further machining. And it would be like the recipe that just worked doesn't work at all because the, the hardness had changed. So quite interesting material. But um, 
Yeah, so the 145, I think that's, is that what it was, the 145 grade? Yeah, it's it's not exactly cheap, but then again, no copper is cheap, but I would I would set up an alert on eBay for any uh, drops or any offcuts, because if any comes around, like that's it's a good one to, to pick up. Yeah, not to be confused with beryllium copper, which you probably really don't want to be machining. Are you making something, what were you doing with that copper, can you say? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's for a material Monday video, so it's, it's really just showcasing some basic tool pads, but I figured because it's not cheap, I might as well try and make something useful out of it. So I was trying to machine, um, soft jaws for the carbide 3d vice, um, because I, I've always wanted to expand on the usability of that thing. Um, it, it's a really basic vice, but I think if I take off the faces of it and I drill two holes, I can bolt on um, copper or aluminum or um, MDF blanks and just use them as soft jaws or to, to hold material that I don't want to mar. So that's that's sort of the end goal here. Um, and I figured since it's copper, I could always anneal it if I want it to be softer um, to hold um, like an odd shaped part or, or something round that I want a little bit of deformation in the, the jaw faces. So I don't know. We'll we'll see where it goes. Um, but it's it's just really a conceptually simple part. Rectangle, two holes, counterboard, done. Yeah, it's definitely a really good uh, anti-mar jaw for the vice, if nothing else. So let's see what else I've been working on. Um, yeah, mostly commercial stuff. Last week, uh, I did have time to do some further refinement on the lanyard beads. I'm still working in. Yeah, you're moving on into different materials, aren't you? Yeah, almost there. So I've actually made two complete prototypes um, and one that was just a engraving test that didn't, didn't, I basically think machined it enough to get to the point where I could engrave it. Um, engraving work is working good, but I need to, uh, it, it's like the contrast is a bit of an issue with just doing line engraving on brass. So, um, I'm trying to decide with if I want to do line engraving or actually just pocket out uh, my logo, like fully pocket out and then put some sort of uh, enamel or not enamel, but um, paint or epoxy or powder coat or something. And probably not powder coat, actually, that'd be, that'd be too uh, labor intensive for me, <laughs> but uh, some sort of color in the in the pocket. So uh, I have one other thing I'm going to try first. I, I was really hoping to be able to just machine, you know, have a completely machine part with no further processing. So I might try like uh, some of the surface finish variations and infusion and see if that can bring out the contrast on the logo, uh, like maybe parallel 90 degrees parallel pass just inside the logo boundary and then do the, the rest of the parts already gets a horizontal, like I have like a hexagon feature around the center of the bead and I do a, a parallel pass across all those faces kind of per uh, perpendicular to the long axis but I might just do like a vertical parallel pass inside the, the logo and see if that brings out some contrast on it. Cause you know, line engraving is super easy. I'd like to be able to stick with that. This is quick, but we'll see. Are you opposed to maybe hand polishing the, uh, the hexagonal faces? Uh, I might polish some of these. Um, I kind of, so what I really was going for is the, like the top and the bottom features have a big chamfer and a bunch of, you know, ring of holes drilled around them. That's kind of a bright finish. And I wanted the, the hex part to actually be more of a matte. So it has a little bit of contrast with the edges. It looks really good. I like the way that came out. 
Um, the thing is, when I engrave on it, just engraving just kind of blends in. It's very subtle. So I, I might have just, I got to figure out what to do inside the border of the engraving to make it pop a little bit more. Um, let's see what else. Yeah, so if I polish anything, it'll just be the outer edges the in the inner bore. But I think the hex faces will always be kind of a, I'll leave those matte. Gotcha. Okay. Let's see what else. Um, yeah, so I was working on uh, work holding for these. So I have, I'm real happy with the ER25 collet chuck that I got. Um, you know, I think last time we talked, I had the ER40, which is what I started this project on. It works fine. It's just, it's too big um, for the, at least for this particular project, because right? I can, I'm using 9 16th stock, so I can get away with a much smaller collet, uh, ER25 collet, which doesn't, uh, gives me a lot more room around the spindle, so I don't have to worry about collisions as much. And that's working good. Uh, I'm working on the work stop now, so I have like an op one work stop, which is real simple. It's just a, a uh, piece of the stock trimmed to the right length. I drop it in the collet before I drop the, the working stock in there and make sure it's the right height. Um, but on the op two where I flip the part, the look the like the height is much more critical because I basically just going to machine off the extra stock that was originally in the collet and then do some finishing on what is now the top that was the bottom of the bead. So I I, I have barely like less than like probably about half a millimeter of grip in the collet at the top of the part. It's really only like, if you look at the bead I've machined, it's, it's a half inch diameter at the largest features. And, but that there's really just two very small rings that are at half an inch. Everything else is kind of machined away. So like at the top and the bottom of the, of the bead, there's like a ring that's at half inch. And that's what I, those two edges are all I have to grip on, on op two in the collet. So, um, basically has to sit down the collet with just about two millimeters sticking up out of the collet. Um, once it's finished, right. I'm machine away everything that's, that's sitting above that, that's extra stock. So that work stop, the height is pretty critical. So I ended up, uh, actually 3d printing a little Arbor that goes into the center hole, center bore in the, in the lanyard B. Cause the other thing is like with it, just touching the collet, I mean, those two small walls touching the collet, it's easy for it, the part to get cocked in the collet. So, uh, yeah, so little, I drop a little uh, 3D printed arbor in there. The beads fits uh, around the around that, and then it sets the, the height and the orientation correctly. And the one thing I have to see is if the height of that, or the length of that 3D PLA printed piece changes over time. Uh, I know there's, I'm not generating much heat with this machine. I'm not really worried about that, but it's more like humidity and that kind of stuff might actually change the the length of this part over time. So I might eventually end up going. Have you, is is that a documented uh, property? Like have people measured the expansion of this stuff? Or shrinking. Yeah. Well, I know PLA changes with, you know, heat and humidity. It, it keeps polymerizing over time. And it eventually gets brittle and breaks, right? So that's PLA is not like a long-term plastic. It's not as durable, I don't think, as ABS. Um, at least in my experience, it gets brittle over time. So I know the material properties change. I'm assuming that can have dimensional changes. Um, but ultimately, I'll probably remake the, the work stop in Delrin. It's just like I have to, I was kind of using 3D printer to prototype it, get the height right, and then I'll probably make a more durable one if this process works. I'm not even sure this was like, this was really just an evaluation of that approach. I may do a different kind of work stop if this doesn't work. So. 
Um, I've got it really set. I haven't done the second op machining with it yet. I was just setting up for it before the podcast. So I'll probably do that tomorrow night. And if it works and I can get like two or three repeatable beads, I'll stick with that approach and start cranking some of these out. And then, yeah, so th then I'll move on to other materials too. That's the next piece. So. Stainless steel, which I may or may not do. Um, actually, I'm more looking forward to doing a grade two titanium version of the speed. Because I think that, yeah, it's going to look pretty good. That that sounds weird to hear from a hobby machinist <laughs> looking forward to machining titanium. I'll be honest, on the V250, uh, grade two is actually pretty easy to machine. Um, the stainless steel 303 is a lot more challenging for me. Um, at least, you know, in my experience so far, it's been easier on the grade two. Now, grade five is a little bit different story, but um, grade two stuff's been pretty forgiving at higher RPM. Yeah, you know, 303 is like, I got to get it just right or I'm going to break the, you know, chip the tool or generate way too much heat at the higher RPM. You're using uh, carbide for all of these? Oh, yeah. You mean versus high-speed steel? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's all I use on any. I don't actually. I don't own any high-speed steel tools. I could say the same, except back in my my younger days of machining, I had no idea what I was buying, so I, I did buy a high-speed steel uh, eighth inch off eBay. I'll probably just like trash that at some point. Yeah, I think for you know the kind of environment we're in with dry machining, carbide just and I'm using really small tools, so the car you know the premium you pay for carbide is. Not much. I, mean, I get, um, other than, you know, I do buy some high-end tools, but for the most part, I do a lot of machining with, with uh, tools that are between 5 and $15, and they last forever, um, unless I break them, right? <laughs> but I rarely wear them out. So, yeah, I, I just never been tempted to even try high-speed steel. Yeah, for what we're doing in the SFMs you're trying to reach, I, I think, I mean, there's really... No reason not to use carbide. Yeah, especially at like, you know, 40, 50,000 RPM. I don't think high speed steel would hold up very long. So I'm trying to think what else I got going on. Um, so yeah, probably a little bit more work on the beads process, I guess, this week. And then hopefully by this weekend, I, I'm in a, I'm basically have a hands-off process for producing them. Um, I'm not going to really make that many, but... I was just going to ask, how many are you going to make? Oh, I don't know yet. I, I've got a list of... People have asked for them, so if I've got that to work through. There's at least ten there, and then I think it'll just be like one of those things I bring, like when I go to, to Autodesk or whatever, just kind of ha have to hand out. I don't want, you know, I have no, I don't plan on like productizing them. These are just for fun. You know, I don't want to say it's a calling card, but it'll just be kind of something, but a, a knickknack, right, to give out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of is a calling card because it's got your logo on it, but I mean, it's. It's a not expensive piece, and it's easy to hand out, and it's good for it's a good conversation starter. Yeah, and it's a good. I think it's a good um, demo piece for the pocket and C because it you know it basically utilizes um, multi-axis three plus two. Like it's it would be a very difficult part to do on a three-axis machine, and it can be machined pretty quickly. So even like if pocket and C wants to run that at their booth, like a demo part like that, I'd be fine with that. Um, I'd be flattered, actually. <laughs> so, if you could figure out a way to use um, like internal work holding on like tube stock, you could even do that in uh, one setup. I was looking for tube stock 
like for the stainless steel, especially that having to machine away the center bore is what takes forever. So um, I couldn't find any 303 tube stock that had the right inner and outer diameter, uh, but I did, there was 304. <laughs> so I have some 304 here that's a uh, good starting stock for the bead, but I haven't machined 304 yet. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and I was, I, I, need, I didn't look for titanium tube stock. I'm pretty sure that's probably going to be available too. Um, any of the materials that take a long time to machine, I would probably go, you know, start with the center bore already machined or, or you know, formed that way in the stock. So then I just had a little bit of finish machining to do on it and the chamfers. And like I said, yeah, inside work holding uh, becomes more viable. What's the, uh, the inside machining that you have to do? Well, I have to finish it, right? So it looks good on the inside. I don't want like a mill finish, so I have to run at least one full pass down it. And then when I drill, so the, I don't know if you've seen the drill, drilling comes in at an angle, like uh, 45 degrees off axis. Um, and so it starts on the OD and actually pierces the, the ID and that leaves a burr, which I also have to go into the, ID, into the uh, center bore and finish up, get rid of the burr. And it's about, the burrs end up being about uh, probably 20% below the surface or below the top, you know, the entry to the bore on both the top and the bottom. So I have to at least be able to machine into uh, like the first 20% of the, of the length of the bore to clean that up. If you were to, let's say, mount this uh, like on a aluminum dowel or something, um, sort of like how when you drill into wood, if you have a, a sacrificial piece behind it, you prevent blowout, that might actually reduce the need for cleanup on the ID. Yeah, I've actually also thought about, I mean, there's really no reason that the drilling has to be through hole. Like I could stop before it goes into the ID, which is another possibility. It probably either looks cooler being able to see straight through those holes, or, I mean, I could see you doing a, a sort of rounded divot, like a little golf ball dimple all around that perimeter. I don't know if a, a half depth hole quite has the same effect. Yeah. So when I originally, like when I originally did the, the idea for the holes, I was thinking, and I still might do this. I actually um, wanted to put a luminous sleeve inside the board. That's also why the, like my whole, the center board is pretty large diameter for the lanyard bead. Um, Cause I expect to stick a sleeve in there of different material at some point. And I was looking at like some of the luminous resin. Um, so you'd actually get light coming through those holes. So I just don't know if it's going to be like, I don't know. I got to experiment with that, see if it's bright enough. But that was kind of why there are through holes right now. Um, one, some sort of like illumination coming from the inside or from the center bore out through those holes. Yeah, I was going to look at it, but that's, that's actually not a bad idea. There's, um, if like center bore work holding becomes like the right way to go, it's easy to make some design changes to accommodate that. The other issue would be the, I still have to kind of finish the other side. Um, but in theory, actually, I could almost hand chamfer. You could reach it. Well, I mean, it's just a chamfer on the bottom. All I really have to do, like I'm talking about on the ID, but actually that could be finished with the Noga. <laughs> doesn't really have to be done on the machine. It's just a, very, it's just a basic edge break chamfer. So, hmm. okay, that's something to think about. Yeah, like on the 304, the... The inside is still pretty rough finish and the edge, like where they cut it, like it definitely needs some cleanup on the inner bore. Um, the stock is like not 
I get I don't know if it's from the saw cutting, but it's got it already has like a burr on the inside. Um, it was pretty hard to get off with the with the deburr tool in three or four. Not so it wouldn't be so hard like brass or softer material, but yeah, it's it's not the cleanest process. Yeah. So what you got going on this week? I'm sort of torn on how to start my next project. I still need to break down my setup. So from the longboard, uh, the last two, I decided to try and maximize like machine rigidity. And to do that, I, I raised my router up and I moved my part up so that the distance from the end mill to the um, Z-axis interface, was that, that moment arm was reduced. And so I've got this uh, three slabs of three quarter inch MDF sitting on top of my table. And I'm trying to figure out what to do with that material. And I, I kind of like the idea of making like a one and a half inch thick uh, additional supplementary table that I can throw on top of my already supplementary wasteboard just to shrink that Z height. Um, so I'm trying to think before I get started on my, my next couple projects, do I want to make um, just a removable uh, threaded insert wasteboard supplement that I can just throw on top of the CNC? And if I do that, what I'm thinking I might do is take um, two sheets of MDF, like maybe 24 by 12 inches, and then uh, pocket at the inside in a repeating pattern, and then glue two of those together. So it's sort of like a, a poor man's MDF uh, torsion box. So it's lighter, um, but it still has that rigidity from the extra thickness. And having something like that on the shape oka would help take some of the bow out of the uh the table so it, it seems like it would benefit the like just my machining jobs in a lot of different ways i just gotta figure out is it worth sinking a couple days into developing that or do i want to just jump straight into another project so i can start like the next video and and just make some progress there so i'm, I'm sort of just drifting around between projects uh, either i machine the MDF I already have, or I, uh, tomorrow I'll do some stock prep for my next project, which I think is going to be, well, I've got two different projects coming up. I want to make some, uh, some simple shop organizers. So I've got a bunch of like impact drivers and drills just laying around on my table and by a bunch, I mean three, but I don't have any good place to put them. And I've seen people, um, like it's like a shop hack where you take a three inch PVC and you cut off the ends and you cut a slit in the bottom of it and you just screw these like under a table or something and you can sort of just holster the drill in the uh, the tubing. Um, but I don't want to buy PVC because like it's actually like per linear foot, it's like more than a couple dollars and I've got MDF so I might as well use it. So I figured I'd cut some, some C-shaped rings out of MDF and screw them under my table and then use that to hold my drills. Uh, so that's basic project number one and then slightly more advanced i want to make myself a monitor stand because right now i'm using like a 300 hundred dollar monitor stand uh to elevate my uh the secondary monitor i use with my macbook um by 300 i mean it's two of my textbooks from grad school so i want to replace it with something a little more uh just classy and hollow so i can like actually store things in it um so that's going to be a I'm thinking walnut and aluminum design, uh, but, and it's, it's really just 
two shapes repeated over and over again, and you stack them together and you either bolt them together or glue them together. So it should be a relatively easy piece to machine, but um, I just, I haven't figured out what I want to do next in my shop. Like tomorrow, am I going to do some cleanup, some organization, some stock prep? It's all up in the air right now. Depends on what I feel like. Uh, the, the past couple of days, just not being in the shop have sort of uh, gotten me off track and I don't know how to get back on track. Yeah, I've got um, not much, you know, not much I can probably be posting this this week because it's got some commercial work but uh i do i've had this uh emco tools five flute it's a like a one eighth inch five flute for steel and aluminum i'm sorry steel and uh titanium specifically got it for titanium it has aluminum chromium nitrate coating which is similar to aluminum you know altin but uh supposed to stand up a little bit better to high temperatures because i'm going to I'm gonna see how well that runs on the uh, the high RPM spindle. It's, it's not the like the most intuitive choice for high RPM with that many flutes, but um, I'm gonna try it in the grade two and see how well that goes. Because I I've been using the Datron uh, single flutes and they work really well, but I'm I am noticing that I'm basically wearing those tools out using them in, in titanium. Um, I haven't broken any, but when I went back and did some surface finishing in aluminum. I was getting some weird like surface finish and I went and pulled a new tool and that one worked fine. So I know it was really just, you know, I dulled the cutting edge. Did you actually take a look at it under a microscope? I have like three tools I need to look at under my new microscope and I just haven't got around to doing it yet. So uh, that's one of the ones I'll, I'll be taking a look at and see how it survived or didn't survive. Yeah. Titanium, I feel like that might blunt the edge, but in aluminum, I mean, I've, I've just gotten aluminum buildup on the edge that dulls the cutter and that i know is reversible but i don't know what the case would be with uh your cutters yeah no, this that tool um it's a particular uh two millimeter single flute that it's basically run forever in the pocket nc and the in the bantam machine and then i ran it in ti grade two grade five and stainless three or three or three stainless on the uh on the V250s. And I think I did a little bit of work on the V210 and titanium on it. So I'm surprised it's like even functions at all, <laughs> but uh, it's still, it's good for roughing. It's just not doing a good job on, on finishing in your sidewalls. So I'm sure it's got some, either some nicks or, or uh, it's just getting dull. But um, anyway, so I want to give this, this tool a try on the titanium. I'll probably run it in the, in the first TIB that I do. Um, for the center bore mainly and see how that does yeah is that is that tool intended for roughing because i feel like five flutes that's not a lot of chip evacuation potential it's for you know roughing in harder materials and also for finishing so this is like roughing and finishing on the speeds and feeds recommendations for it the tool vendor reached out to me when they saw me doing titanium and kind of high rpm they said maybe try this we don't know if it, we have a good idea it might it might work but we're kind of, they're more curious, I think, <laughs> how it's going to work on something like the NSK. So uh, we'll see. Well, I should be able to, it's, I've had it for a while, I just haven't had time or the project to actually give it a test. So I hope to address that this week. Um, if I can get that done, I'll be able to post about that. And I think that's it. I, I ran it in 303 today for the first time, or yesterday, I think it was, I posted about it today. Um, just did some facing for the work stop that I'm using on the, for the beads. 
it ran fine. It wasn't really much of a test yet. So it's going to get more of a workout later this week. That's pretty much it for me. That that should be a pretty... I'm looking forward to seeing the results of that. Um, just because I don't like have any recipes or tooling for any metals other than aluminum or brass or copper. And at some point I want to make that jump to steel, mild steel, stainless steel. Um, one day I'll, I'll develop the, uh, the confidence to try titanium. But for now, I'm just uh, writing down all your all your little tidbits that you drop on Instagram. Yeah, I think um, I think a tool like this, the high flute counts are really probably more optimized for low RPM, high torque, you know, big machine spindles. Um, but I'm curious how how it would write, you know with lighter cuts at higher RPM. So I'll push it. I mean, it's more of an experiment, so I'm, I'm willing to push it till it breaks and see what happens with it. Yeah. Do you know how much that tool costs by any chance? I actually don't. So this was a evaluation tool. I don't have a price sheet from these guys. I posted the part number, so if anyone wants, it's on my. It was on today's Instagram post. There's a. It's like IMCO, not EMCO. There's two M codes out there, like six five zero zero two, eighth inch five flute, quarter inch flute length. Yeah. So it's it's. Probably, uh, I mean, I was kind of surprised there were five flutes in that small a diameter that would fit on something like the the V two fifty. So that was kind of that was the thing I was most interested. In, see what you know. I've never run anything bigger than four flutes, so I'm curious about the higher flute counts at higher RPM. All right, well, I think that's it for me, buddy. I think we're about an hour. Um, got anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Uh, no, it's about as good a time to wrap up as any. All right, Winston. Well, I appreciate it. It's a good conversation as always, and I will talk to you in two weeks. Yeah, look forward to the next time we catch up. Good night, Winston. Have a good one.